0: Hello, I'm Dr. Kay Eyre, and this is the Trauma Informed Education Podcast. As teachers, we often hear conflicting information and advice on supporting challenging students. Should we reward appropriate behaviour or are we making students slaves to external rewards? Should we set limits on unsafe conduct or are we re-traumatising children who are already in pain? Educators are constantly under pressure to meet key performance indicators while attending to children with complex difficulties. Often desperate for support and wanting for skills, Teachers are often left wondering, how do I treat one student differently from the rest? A differentiated social emotional pedagogy lies at the heart of a trauma informed approach, with the relational safety of students forming the foundations of such practices. Today we speak with Louise Michelle Bommer. Louise is qualified as both a specialist teacher, a therapist, and a dyadic developmental psychotherapy certified practitioner. She has worked with individual pupils, classes, whole school settings, local authorities, teachers and support staff across both the primary and secondary phases. She has provided consultations and training for education, social services and health. She is the founding director of Touch Base, a non-for-profit community interest organisation. She is the author of many articles and several best-selling books, including Inside I'm Hurting, Know Me to Teach Me, and Settling Troubled Pupils to Learn, Why Relationships Matter in Schools. She co-authored this with Dan Hughes. Louise will be interviewed by Dr. Gavin Krishnamurthy and myself. We hope you find this interview useful.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Trauma Informed Education. My name is Dr. Govind Krishnamurti, and I'm joined as always with Dr. Kay. Hi, Kay.
0: Hi, Gavind. How are you?
1: I'm good, thank you. It's a bit chilly here today. Um, <laughs> we're in winter, but um, I'm very excited to talk to Louise today. Louise, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, Louise, we'll jump right into it. Um, So, this is a podcast for educators. And so, we wanted to start by asking you how your own educational experiences have influenced your work.
2: Wow. Well, education was a lifesaver for me from all that was going on at home. Life at home was really challenging for me. And I absolutely loved school, everything about it, its predictability, its routines, its structure. The opportunities to learn the hope that was engendered. And I was so fortunate to have many teachers along my journey who believed in me and who went the extra mile and who encouraged me on. And I remember having um, my creative writing up on display boards and just being really proud, you know, that I'd made a difference and that you know that, that they were proud of me and pleased with what I was doing. And I remember really thriving on practicing learning, you know, learning something new and getting stuff right. And just to see the smile of one of my favourite teachers just made all the difference in the world to me. Um, and I was average ability. I wasn't like, you know, high flyer or anything. But I got into a girls grammar school um, over here in England. And I remember feeling so excited about all that I might that might be possible for me to do in the world. And I was led to believe that I could make a difference. And um, so I know firsthand the difference that education can make literally make to someone's life. And It can offer you another way of being, another trajectory, and as it did for me. Um, And I just am aware that for many, school is such a safe haven. So that's why I'm so passionate about ensuring that all those involved in education step up and realise all that they can offer a child, which goes way beyond simply curriculum. That's
1: great. Hmm. I think that's really nice to hear. Um, I, I always love hearing teachers talking about their experiences in school. Actually, um, it, it always makes me curious about the bits that they kind of remember and the, uh, you know, things they value. Um, Louise, I, I wanted to, uh, uh, We we are huge fans of your work, by the way. Uh, and for people listening, uh, we were just talking just before we got started about your book. Inside, I'm hurting. Oh, I'm, I'm a big fan of your. New book, Know Me to Teach Me. Um, You talk about um, this concept of honoring a child's biology. Um, Could you tell us a little bit more about that and the neurodevelopmental sequence and what that means for educators?
2: Yeah, well, I just believe that it's really essential if we're trying to get alongside a child or a young person that we first of all know how human beings function and then how they function best. Um, it just kind of is a no-brainer to me. It just makes so much sense that that's our starting point. And as a teacher and as a therapist, I'm especially interested, I suppose, in understanding how we can help a child or a young person to stay focused, so they can actually take in what I'm trying to talk to them about, what I'm trying to teach. Um, especially for those who've got limited focus. Um, so for me, this this means learning about how the social engagement system gets activated. And, and overridden by our nervous systems. So I'm really fascinated by, and I'm, I'm integrating all the time, and the polyvagal theory, Stephen Porges' work. Um, so simply put, I'm just acutely aware that the more we can support a child to have a felt sense of safety, the more we can help them to be in a position to learn, to have that capacity to be able to even be in that place to be able to hear me, to be able to tune into the human voice, to be able to take in what's going on around them um, and to be able to really maximize their exploratory system. Um, and I just realized that there's such a direct correlation between sensing threat and our social engagement system being hijacked by the fight flights or the free systems. And we really don't want that on our watch when we're trying to teach in, in our school systems. And I've been an avid follower of Dr. Bruce Perry's work for years now, and it is so clear that there's an order to how we support children um, to all of this, like an order to when and to how we could we, we should engage a child, especially in the classroom context where we're wanting them to tap into their exploratory system. that that system that's to do with stepping out of the familiar into something that is unknown, that requires risk, um, you know it's so important. Now, I was taught when I was doing my teacher training to simply get started. You know, they come into class, date title, get started, assuming that the prefrontal cortex, that thinking part of the brain, was ready to go. That is far too simplistic an instruction, I now realise. And I now know that at any given time that any of us are all in one of the three nervous systems, according to Pauline's, and which one we're in matters as it determines where we are and how accessible we are in terms of human contact and in terms of whether we can actually use our thinking brain our prefrontal cortex so perry talks about the need for a bottom up approach as opposed to a top down approach which is what i was used to going in there you know getting cognitive straight away he explains the need to ensure the lower parts of the brain are quiet and down first so for example those children that are coming in with high levels of toxic stress, that their alarm systems need to be attended to first, they need to be quietened to be soothed. And that the best way to access those lower parts of the brain, that kind of downstairs brain, is to go sensory, isn't to kind of be cognitive. Um, and it's he talks about the fact that it's only when we kind of access that part that we can then have access to the next floor up, so to speak, um, in terms of you know fully accessing it, that emotional limbic brain, the middle part of the brain, And then I'm aware that once we're there, um, we can then attend to that area by connecting in some way. Now, I believe really strongly that we need to be communicating worth and value, giving that kind of sense of togetherness, that we're in this together on this learning journey. Um, And we can do that in all manner of creative ways. But the message that the child is not alone um, and trauma recovery, as we know, after all, is all about undoing aloneness. So that is a really important part too. Um and then only then can we really truly venture to the top floor, the prefrontal cortex, where we have the possibility of engaging in the cognition, the cognitive or the executive functioning of the child, the three R's. So Bruce Perry talks about, you know, regulate first, then relate, then reason. Um, and in my latest book, No Me to Teach Me, I've added in um, a fourth one as well, um, to reflect and to repair. Because um, that obviously needs to be at that, that level as well. So I talked to the um, the teachers that I work with about using little mini circles kind of going around that cycle um, with our more high profile children, for example, little mini circles, but the whole school using this as a way of being throughout the whole school day. So we've got little mini circles going in within this bigger circle, regulate, relate, reason, repair. Um, and we found it to be so so effective and it just seems like the right order you know it fits with how we function best it it just fits.
1: That's great there Louise a lot to unpack a lot of like really useful handy concepts I think that um, people can take away to think about and apply in their practice. I wanted, I had a question about the sensory modulation I'll, I'll come to that in a minute I wanted to get your sense about the relate piece um, and, and how how you see, um, you know, what are the, some of the common pitfalls with teachers trying to provide that feeling of felt safety and when they're trying to reach out and connect? You talked about, you know, going too high, you know, going too cognitive earlier on and not doing the relationship ship stuff first. Are there anything, are there any other kind of things that you observe that are some common pitfalls, Louise?
2: Well, I have to just say that there are two big barriers to connection, I think, in the classroom. And the first is distrust, because we've got many children that have experienced all kinds of intimacy, intimacy betrayals in terms of what they've lived, their lived experiences of trauma and loss. Um, and that can get in the way, obviously, because if you've got that block trust, you know, how can you, it requires it, it a lot of trust to be able to take the risk required in learning. So we've got that. <laughs> and we've also got the dysregulation piece. Because I think we make too many assumptions about children having self-regulation when a lot of them haven't had anybody making sense of their state, sensations and feelings. And so they have no idea where they are in time and space. They have no idea where they begin and end. They have no idea what to do with kind of the overwhelm that kind of comes up from time to time. Um, Those of us who've had rich relational experiences um, will be able to get ourselves back to balance quite quickly but many of the children people that I work with who've experienced toxic stress are stuck, kind of like they get stuck in a state of alarm and they have no idea how to get back into the social engagement system. Um, and that's where they need us. And I think those two are the biggest villains, I suppose, that are in the in the story um, in terms of our schools um, and that need attention, but they so are often misinterpreted by, by education staff who maybe have not had um enough training around this whole area so they might just see it as like a child being willful willfully you know um disobedient or um you know just just trying to sabotage their lessons for example not really understanding what's at the root of all of this and 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 i just feel like if we can kind of really go for those two particularly you know the distrust and the dysregulation pieces then we can make such headway with our students um and, and help them with that sense of felt safety and help them with that sense of internal control that they that they need. Um, and we can't we just can't assume that they've got it. You know, um everybody needs somebody alongside to help them with those two
1: areas. Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you. I'll just throw it over to Kay if she had any questions or comments.
0: what I was gonna say was that I liked you mentioned limited focus, and I thought, mm. "Oh, that's that's a that's a much more meaningful way to express difficulties with attention." Because it, as a behavior person, it bothers me when I hear um, educators say, "Oh, well, the behavior is literally just tr- because he's just trying to get attention," or she's just. There seems to be a bit of a <laughs> A bit of a, um, mm. a thing with children who are seeking attention, you know. Um, and I, I I, just love that, you know, when you it, it described it as children with limited focus. Yeah, I thought that that's, yeah, I like that.
2: Mm. Okay, they're just so hypervigilant, aren't they? They literally oh, their absolutely. Back. So how on yeah. earth can they focus yes. in on us, and there's so much else to take in, you know, that window of, of tolerance, that window of. Being able to be present in the here and yes. now, being able to tune into what I'm trying to teach, you know, whatever it might be, it's like you, mm. you know, it's easily sabotaged, isn't it? When, when yes. there's so much else that they need to be mindful of
1: in the moment.
2: Mm. Mm.
1: Mm. Uh, that was quite interesting, Louise. I was thinking about the interplay between dysregulation and mistrust, and and how. Even though we might think of it as just two things, how tricky that that is sometimes to navigate as teachers to, you know, find that balance of how you can use a relationship and when you don't, and you know, and when is it, you know, when do you, when are you supporting what, and where does core regulation fit into it? And I think that that's, but that's a kind of helpful way I think for teachers think about, you know, the two villains as you'd call it. Um, being played out. One of the things we're seeing more and more is these sensory modulation type of interventions, Louise. And I suppose, um, because Ken and I do a lot of work with schools, we you sort of see it being used well, thoughtfully, and there are times where, You know, it's kind of being used out of real desperation, really, because, you know, you've seen an Instagram post or, you know, you've seen something on Teachers Pay Teachers and you think, well, this, uh, surely this must sort of help somehow. Well, what is your sense of how those sensory modulation um, kind of tools can be used thoughtfully, do you think, in the classroom?
2: It has to, the relationship has to come first. So everything has to be done in the context of relationship. Um, it can't and, and also it can't just be like a discrete provision, which I've seen here like in England as well, literally a child being sent off to go and do something um, over there. Um it all needs to be integrated. I think our children really need us to be providing that integrated piece, that integrative piece. So I talk about flexi support, for example. I talk about the fact that we need to at any given moment move between kind of talking, using words, and going sensory. Um we've got to be able to just stop, stop ourselves rather than being, you know, I remember Daniel Siegel talking about, you know, we need to be consistent, but not rigid. And I think there's, there's something we need to offer here in terms of our way of being um, as members of staff. Um, and, and there are children out there who are, because of block trust, they are very resistant to relationship. And so yes, they, that is the trickiest kind of ground to navigate when you you can see they need some help with their regulation. But they're also kind of like, really resistant to doing anything with us. Um, and so in those situations, and I've had to do this myself, um, I have to say, um, in the therapy room or out in a school, um, it, what we have to do is literally we have to do it ourselves. We have to do what we might need for our own regulation, because make the most of the fact we can download Calm into others through the use of mirror neurons. So, so I really encourage our staff to, to carry around their own kind of bits and pieces in Calm purses, Calm bags. Um, or little pencil cases you know with bits and pieces in where they actually will co-model regulation um, for themselves so they really I say focus on your own breathing focus on your own grounding do whatever you need to do to kind of stay calm make it explicit so use bits and pieces so it's obvious in front of the child that you're you know you are doing something you don't have to go into into any explanation as to why but just literally just like I'm just going to do this right now Um, in fact the less words the better (laughs) Um, and so we found that that is a really helpful way of kind of of supporting another is really focusing in on the teacher's own regulation needs um, particularly at those points where you get you know that kind of crescendo going on where it could actually be a recipe for disaster if both are dysregulated Um, and I'm, I'm a a strong believer of having bits and pieces readily available, so so we use calm boxes and calm purses for the pupils themselves. We have lots of little bits and pieces like that just take two minutes, so you don't necessarily have to go out of the space. Um, but we might practice it somewhere else, you know, away from everybody else, and just see what kind of bits and pieces might work for this one because it's going to be different to the next. So a lot of it is about practicing the art of achievement, isn't it? And kind of you know watching how they respond um, before, during, and after. Does it actually help? Or does it actually make things worse? And I talk to the children and young people about it themselves. Like, let's let's be sensory detectives. You know, let's let's check some of this out and experiment and see what's helpful and what's not. And then they end up with their own personalised little bag or box um, that they can just use from time to time. With the older ones who are more self-conscious, I, I do get them to have bits and pieces in their pockets or in their pencil cases, which looks a bit more subtle because obviously they are very conscious of their peers. Um, but again, we practice in other spaces together with grown-ups, you know, with the education staff. Um, and we also encourage um, sensory breaks, which are longer, 15, 20 minutes, which might be outside the classroom, which might. I, I'm a strong believer of using um, kind of like equipment, physical kind of equipment, like rowers and upright bikes and jogging on the spot, all that kind of thing. Or the plank, you know, um, some of the education staff love me because I'm literally like, come on, let's let's do this or let's do that. And even if the young person doesn't join in, we do it. So we have we need staff and you know, they're up for giving all of this a go, I suppose, not saying, what well, we're going to leave it over to the PE teacher or leave it to that person, the OT. I mean, all of these people are really helpful in terms of their roles and responsibilities, but I think we can add in to our tool banks ourselves. And and a lot of this is to do with us knowing our own nervous systems and knowing how they work so that we can then pass it on and maybe lead regulators, so to speak. So we need to get very good at... Um, being stress regulators for ourselves so that we can then be lead stress, stress regulators for children and and we also get outside quite a lot whenever we can at any opportunity there's something very therapeutic and grounding work in the land so even if you've got a bit of wasteland by the school it's just like let's go and dig it let's go and do something with that because you know just 10 minutes here 15 minutes there it can make all the difference in the world um so yeah being
1: creative that's really um, interesting the way you described that, Louise. Because I think before we give the kids any of these sensory modulation, it's helpful for the teachers to use it on their own, <laughs> just to you know just to have a sense of how it actually works. But the other sort of thing that you know that I sort of realized as you were talking is to realize that just those strategies themselves isn't enough. That you have to do that in a context of feeling supported in a school environment amongst your peers and the relationships there as well. And I think that sort of is an interesting point of reflection for teachers, I think, because then you realize how the child needs that too, that they need those, that environment, relational environment that supports Mm -hmm.
2: that. Yeah, if all of this is about stress regulation, then we know that increasing familiarity decreases stress,
1: so. Yeah, no, that's great. I had a question for you about the attunement piece you were talking about there, um, one of the common things we hear, and, and this is a very real dilemma I think for teachers, is the sense of, you know, I just don't have just the one child to be attuned to, <laughs> I have many children, um, and how, and, and you know, I guess there does come a point where that becomes too much for some children, but being an educator and a therapist, I was really curious on your take about it, about this sense of how you can have sort of a reasonable level of attunement to a class or the, the kind of the kids who need it, and how you can manage that sort of attentional focus as an educator. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, I I tend to go for where the where the fires are greatest, um, I'm because I think if I can kind of calm those fires, then it will have a, a knock on impact on the rest of the class. So. So, yeah, and I'm also a strong believer of quality moments. And I think sometimes people do think, oh, gosh, this is going to take so much time, you know, and, and as if I've got the luxury of that when I've got so much curriculum to get through. But, you know, just a moment here, or a moment there of, of me being completely present, um, being able to be physically and emotionally present, attentive, change and responsive in a moment can, again, just make such a difference. So it, it is literally the one by one. But picking out the ones that I think I need to go for in this particular lesson, um, the ones that I need to keep my eye on, the ones that I need to be ensuring are, are still with me, um, can really, really make a difference. And if I have a class of a lot of children who have come from an environment of toxic stress, well, that's me. Um, it, it, it literally indicates that I need to have more adults in the room. And I don't think we've got that like, over here in England anyway. We haven't got the ratio right at all. Um, and I'm always constantly trying to think of creative ways of how we get more adults in the room so that so that we we build up that ratio because because we know don't we that you know we need to surround that with that relational buffering with that with somebody to practice all of this with um and it is really difficult one to 30 32 35 don't know what the numbers are there um it, it's really really difficult to be able to notice the subtle cues that we do need to be able to tune into so particularly you've got a class of for over here we would have, have a maybe a pupil referral unit where many of the children had experienced toxic stress, it all come from very traumatic backgrounds and in the room together, then obviously that's a lot more problematic. And um, I don't think that should ever just be one, one person standing there. Um, but but even still, the principle is go for where the, the fires are greatest.
1: Thanks, Louise. That's brilliantly practical and insightful. Thank you for that. Um, I wanted to ask you, I was thinking about, how you were talking about you know children getting dysregulated and I think one of the kind of key triggers around that uh, particularly the kids have had a bit of a tough time outside of school is um, feelings of shame and especially when you're talking and helping them think through um, you know things that have happened for them or things that they've kind of done in the school school environment that's not so good um, how do you uh, can you tell us about how you think about that process of reflecting with the students and not to kind of provoke feelings of shame in them?
2: Well, first of all, I think we earn the right to get into those kind of conversations. So it shouldn't just be any old member of staff or somebody that's in a senior leadership role, for example, just because something's kicked off or, um, or there's been some kind of relational rupture, which often unfortunately is the case. as somebody come, kind of comes in who the child has no relationship with at all, um, and they kind of exert power and authority and control in the situation, and that can exacerbate the situation. And yeah, sometimes we might we might get some compliance, but that's literally all it is. It's not the child hasn't actually learned from that experience. So I'm a strong believer of keeping fear low and particularly shame and stress low, seeing myself as being the lead regulator in all of that. Um, and so, first of all, it needs to be somebody that is familiar, who's got a connection already, that has those kind of conversations. And then secondly, choosing the timing of when you have them. Um, it's not appropriate, even though I was taught this. at It's training to kind of go straight in there and nip it in the bud. It's its not. It, um, it's about making sure that you've got that window of focus. Um, so I would first want to go around the circle again, so I'd regulate, relate, and then get into that. And it would be, I'd have to choose as well with limited language what my golden nugget was going to be. What was I going to drop in? That was my teaching point. Um, You know, so so not long lectures or anything like that, but literally just getting straight to the point and and encouraging um, a collaborative space together where we can both be curious. And a a phrase that I use a lot in my work is help me to understand. And and that is like using non-shaming language and it invites curiosity from the student themselves. And that's where I want to go, because quite often I've got a very different interpretation of why something might have happened. But when I allow that child or young person the space to start wondering themselves about it, we can sometimes get very a very different angle. If we if we press pause for long enough, we can we can then find out their motives and their intentions, and it's sometimes very very different. And I don't think we always allow that space um, in school either. So it's protecting the space to to have some to engage in some active listening, um, and and that is what I think. If the child feels that that mutual respect going on they're more likely to be able to then listen. They're more uh, more likely to be able to engage in, in what we need to do, which is that reflective piece, the reflective dialoguing that needs to
1: go on between us. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Louise. I'll just throw it over to Kay to see if she had any thoughts or comments about that. There
0: we go. Um, I guess I was just thinking about... Um, the terminology that you use is so relatable. Like I loved how you said, you know, download Calm and, you know, and you can, you know, put it on pause sort of thing. I think that makes it really real to teachers. You can, the, the terminology that we use makes it really accessible. When somebody says, now, hang on a minute, you know, we can't have two lids flipped here because it's not going to be helpful. So you need to download Calm before you step into that situation. And what does that look like for you? And I found that um, conversation really inspiring in that as classroom teachers, we explicitly think aloud for, for our academic And our curriculum teaching, we we teach children by thinking aloud what we do when we come to a word we don't know, when we can't work out how many numbers we need or whatever it is, but we tend to shy away from that when it comes to social-emotional things. And the power of that um, can't be underestimated when you actually do it because it's it's one of those really... um, uh, sort of mysterious, unseen notions, isn't it? That needs to have something, a face to it. So, and physical things, like you said, and I remember being, you know, so, so anxious when I first became a deputy principal to take assembly or parade or the whole school assembly. And it was a little thing. Principal said to me, okay, you know what I do to keep myself calm? I keep a paper clip in my pocket so I can fiddle with it. And the fiddling inside my pocket just helps me to calm down. It might work for you. It might not. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, there's a strategy that I could use or I could think of my own strategy. And, Mm -hmm. I mean, he was none the wiser that that made such an impact, that mere sentence. And I just think how powerful it is for a child who's sitting there probably thinking, you know push 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 i don't want to do this why should i i'm i'm going to pretend i don't care and yet oh okay so that teacher's got his stuff and oh that's what she does it's so yeah i just really i think that's that's wonderful as a from a classroom teacher's point of view that sort of modeling we model how to read silently we model how to do all this stuff but we don't model strategies for our own emotions and make it okay that that's what people do
2: so it's thank so you important.
0: I thought that was great
2: thank you Kay because I think I think yeah the whole the whole part of, of making this explicit that which is normally not said making it explicit um and I think we should, we should get into these conversations much much earlier we should be using all these strategies ourselves much earlier when they're so young because over here in England, we don't tend to talk about stress or even mention it or talk about any kind of strategies to do with stress until they're about to do their exams at like 15, 16. Um, and I just think, gosh, you know, we, if, if they learn about this right from day one, about the fact that we all experience stress and we all have to come up with strategies, so let's experiment together. You know, if if that was just a bit more open, I think that could make a massive
1: difference in our schools. Thanks, Louise. I I loved what you said about earning the right and getting the permission to be able to have those conversations, um, which is just like a wonderful way to think about safety and and, and, and a democratic way to think about how things happen at school. Um, And it reminded me of a conversation I was having with a principal recently who was trying to think of some consequences of a of a young boy who had misbehaved at school and he was, he didn't want to do what we call like a suspension, which is sending the child home and not allowing them to come back. He wanted to do this thing called an in-school suspension, where you're keeping them at school, doing different things and, um, you know, we were trying to kind of brainstorm what that could actually look like, how could it be sort of related to what he had done, what the consequences might be. and. Uh, how he could kind of repair and kind of reconnect with the school community somehow Uh, what are your thoughts about consequences and that repair and reconnect piece do you think
2: well something i think it's really important that they do whatever it is together with us not on their own it's not uh, us sitting over here watching them do whatever it is that they need to do um i think the piece that's really important is the kind of the togetherness, the, them experiencing us as fellow travellers in the world, not as those who are wanting to exert power, power, authority, or being experienced as those who tap into the fear system that they've got. Um, many of the children I work with, particularly who've experienced trauma and loss, have, have had many experiences of adults misusing power, authority and control. And so I feel like one of our main jobs in all of this is to surprise their brains and to come at this in a really different way so what have they not had much of or not had at all um probably somebody being gentle with their strength and strong with their gentleness um you know so so it's about me thinking about that first of all um and co-modeling kind of cooperation and i think it's about us leading the way as well not necessarily saying what do you think you need to do to put this right it'll be about us maybe facilitating kind of creative opportunities for them but i also Believe in natural consequences. That's quite a, an easy win um, in the school context. In terms of, you obviously just can't manage this right now. And saying that in a non shaming way, just but you will be able to. Like we just need to do. We just need to practice this more because there will be a day when you're strong enough to be able to manage X, Y, Z. But for now, we might just need to increase instructions and supervision. You know, um, around whatever it is that's going on because you're finding it really, really tricky right now. Um, and yes, they might be really upset by that, but it's about me just holding the boundaries and seeing myself as the lead in that and making sure that I'm differentiating, going back to what Kay was saying, the emotional, social tasks and expectations rather than just curriculum. You know, I don't want to set them up to fail, so to speak. Um, so maybe they're not strong enough yet, but they soon will be. But my other favourite is using random acts of kindness. But again, together, I'm not saying you go and do this, this and this, but you know what could we do so we just literally just sit and think what can we do to put a smile back on that person's face because they're obviously upset by what's happened um obviously good to use somebody who's kind of familiar but not necessarily the person that has been you know injured in whatever way um and so we would think together about what could we do you know like okay you know miss potts loves flowers why don't we go and water her plants for, for the week you know you and me come on, let, let's go and do that. We'll surprise her by watering the plants for a week. Literally just thinking up things like that, but together. Um, and just, just you know, so the random acts of kindness is one of my favorites, I suppose, but whatever we do, I feel it needs to be respectful, relational, and relevant. Um, in and in, in, in a time when they are in the engagement system, the social engagement system, so they can actually take it in and learn something about behavior as a result of the interaction. It's no good if they're, you know, over there and they're just kind of out of body, in alarm, and we're trying to do some repair. You know, it's it's just it's just not gonna we're just gonna end up in a vicious cycle and things could possibly get much, much worse. Um so yeah, we have to use the cycle again, the the you know, regulate,
1: relate, repair. It's it's amazing. I was thinking of how powerful fear is, I think, and and it's almost it's such a um I call it like the irresistible invitation to be punitive <laughs> you know to, to use fear cuz it's it's such a go-to thing and we have so much fight in it but uh, uh, that that's one of the reasons I love working with children who are a bit challenging because you know you can't you know it doesn't make sense to go there anymore and you've got to find a different way to kind of you know look for safety and look for connection You mentioned this phrase, Louise, um, being strong with the gentleness. (laughs) I think that's such a nice way to think about, um, you know, how we talk to uh, teachers, everybody really about building relationships with um, the kids. I was wondering if you could say something about that, because I feel like part of the kind of new experience of grownups or any relationships we're giving the kids is this sense of someone who can be Kind, but not you know kind, but not weak, you know um, helpful and guiding you, but not mean or coercive, as you say, but what is your take on that about how you can be like an attachment figure for the kids there?
2: yeah, well, um I really love circle of security, I don't know if you, you know about that yet um and the way they talk about being the hands on the circle, so being the bigger, wiser, stronger, and kind um person always so um and and they say don't they? in the circle of security you know whenever possible follow the child's lead um whenever necessary <laughs> you take the lead um and uh, that's what I integrate into my work um here is is literally being being those those hands um because at the end of the day you know I am the grown-up and and I do need to, to take charge I need to lead and that's my responsibility so if something's going you know kicking off or going wrong it's I would see that more as I, I need to think about that you know what what do I need to reflect on in terms of the context did I set them up to fail did I maybe not give them enough support you know I don't necessarily go straight to you know they need (laughs) they need to know that they should not have done this this and this um so yeah I feel like I feel like that is where we need to be is, is this position of the child being at the center of all of this and that I'm here to to support to guide to to lead um, and I do think sometimes some people are a little bit anxious about that and, and maybe don't always know. They, they might move into more of a um, kind of a mean way of doing that rather than leading with gentleness and kindness and strength. So it's about us holding our boundaries and meaning what we, we say, sticking with what we say, being consistent, but not rigid, <laughs> like Daniel Siegel says. Um, yeah, being able to be flexible and move about. but But the child knowing that, you know, you do mean what you say and you will do what you mean. And and say so they, they start to feel safe within that, don't they, when they they've got those those boundaries being held.
1: Yeah, no, I was I was interested in your observations of other teachers and their journey with this. You know, I kind of feel like you have the teacher who is who who's probably not big on the limit setting, but who's got their own strengths and kind of being able to be, you know, warm or engaging, whatever. And then you have people who are. Very good with structure, but maybe sort of, you know, maybe on the colder kind of side with the kid. Uh, what is your observation of how teachers are found that balance, Louise, just with people you've worked with or teachers you've observed yourself?
2: I think, I think it's it's sometimes quite hard for certain people to have that awareness of themselves. So something that can be really helpful um, is video interaction guidance where you literally have that playback. Um, of of seeing how you are um, in different dyads with with students that has been such a powerful piece um, in in our work over here um if we do get a little bit stuck with something it's just like well come on let's let's just see what's working what what does work and when the child does connect or when they do open up or when they are like in that position where you feel like they are taking in what you're trying to say to them and then building on that so kind of catching those moments um yeah, just like we might with families, I just think the VIG particularly is a really helpful tool for that. I don't really use that where you are, um, but we found that to be really helpful. So just having somebody, it's like having another person alongside just watching with you, I suppose, providing that reflective space. Because we don't always we don't always do that. Or if you've not had therapy yourself, you might not necessarily engage in that reflective practice. So, yes, yeah, so just another fellow traveller. I think I think all adults need to have somebody watching their backs too and just giving that, that feedback in a kind way. Um, but obviously that that also means that we need, to have, we need to be in a context of no blame. We need to be able to be feeling that we can trust and be alongside and, and say it as it really is, you know, because that's the only way we're going to make progress here is when we can feel honest enough to share what is difficult, what is tricky in the classroom and which dynamics we find particularly hard or which ones activate our own shark music you know which ones trigger us and where we find ourselves maybe moving more into that kind of fear fear base where we might be more likely to activate the fear system in a child um so it's all to do with
1: self-awareness I think thanks Louise I I might throw it over to Kay I feel like she might have a few things to say about that about (laughs) training teachers
0: oh no yeah I I was just thinking um that that self reflection it's often a case of um isn't it of you don't know what you don't know because it's such a personality trait or a characteristics of yours that until you are in that safe space or for whatever reason somebody constructively points it out to you you think oh wow i i had you know no idea and my own um out of the mouths of babes my own children um when they were little, um, would say <laughs> we'd go shopping and uh, you know whatever, and then Mary would say to me, "You were very rude to that shop lady, mummy," and I'd say, "No, I wasn't. Yes, you were. You had a cross face and you spoke this way and that way, and I had no idea that was the way I'd come across, and and I was very grateful." <laughs> to that to to her to have said it because I thought oh my goodness do I need to go back and apologize I had no idea that that was the way my manner came across to other people or could be perceived that way and I think it's just so Mm -hmm. such a an important professional growth space to be in that sort of space where you have that security and and you have somebody that you trust enough to tell it the way it is and vice versa and I just think yeah it's yeah, such such an important staff culture to um, for leaders in our schools to build that felt safety in their staff for their professional growth. I think it's just critical. Mm-hmm.
2: And you've just made me think, hey, then about um, another you know, a real quick win for increasing felt safety is to smile. And yeah, a lot of people when they're thinking they might have a very still face, like in our schools, or if they're and they've got a lot that they're carrying that they've got to try and get through the day, like, you know, trying to think of all the different classes mm. that they're managing and all the rest of it, you can see how they could easily go into a still face. Yes, and, and not, you've got that cross face them. or you've got that yeah. angry face. and <laughs> yeah. So I always say to staff, you know, whenever you can, smile, you know, um, because it, it's an easy win. And so many of the children I work with really, really notice the smiles, um, you know, that they'll notice when we do that. Uh, and yes, they, will. they do. So obviously we'll... we'll say about times that they don't feel comfortable at all in the classes where people have those still faces, you know. Um, and so it's really interesting. I I, I send parents, when parents go to parents' evenings and they're meeting all the different members of staff and they know there are certain subject teachers that the child struggles with, I'm like, watch their face. See how you feel. <laughs> yes. And quite often it is because of that. It's literally the still face. Um,
0: and I've had children describe other staff members to me Like if they were out on in the playground and some unfairness in their perception had occurred, and I'd say, but who who was the teacher? And they would always describe those characteristics if they didn't know their name. The one that's always got her arms folded. The one with the Mm -hmm. um, you know, with the cross face that always stands near the the red tree, or what you know. And it was always a description of the person by their manner, how they stood, how they looked whether Mm. they had open body language, closed body language, whether they smiled, whether they were the happy teacher or the sad one, you know, um, it's quite incredible. They definitely, that's how they seem to yeah, make pictures. Mm. Mm.
1: Very good. So we were talking about parents there, Louise. Did you have any thoughts about what teachers can do to build relationships with parents and carers? Well, I encourage um, home school partnership
2: reviews um, that we do on a weekly basis. So on a Friday afternoon, um, the key adults, who's usually over here, we have teaching assistants and mentors that might be alongside a particular pupil. They would write down any stresses or calm as they'd noticed over the week and any possible stresses for next week. And then the parent or carer would do that on a Sunday and send that in for what they've noticed themselves in their context. So we start speaking the same language. Um, using that, that shared language is so, so helpful in terms of stresses and calmness. And most people seem to get that. Um, most of us understand what stress is. Um, the, the trickiest bit is keeping it brief, keeping it to bullet points, keeping it like focused on literally just stress and calm because everybody wants to share everything else as well. Um, but when we start getting that shared language going, it's so, so helpful because... So many of the parents and carers that I work with are longing for others to get it. Um, And those who they experience have taken the time out to really learn and to listen to how bodies and minds are impacted by trauma and loss in particular, they just feel a sense of relief, they so do. Many are exhausted from feeling the need to be translators. They've been seen as fussy parents, or those who are a bit zealous. Um, And they just feel that sense of relief that their children are understood. Um, and then they feel that they can engage in their social engagement systems because they don't feel under threat anymore because obviously having to fight all the time, it's literally they don't feel like they can relax or really get into proper meaningful dialogue with education staff because they're always in a a state of defence. So kind of it's a no-brainer really is is to literally try and find a shared language, I think, and and to find that space where we actually value one another and see each other as an important part of the team. And I've actually written like five little mini- pocketbooks one for each member of the team and there's one for the parents called the attachment to Our school series and um and it just helps everyone to be really clear about what their boundaries are you know what their roles and responsibilities are and how they all interplay as well because you kind of need to know what your bit is in the jigsaw so to speak um so that you don't kind of step on everybody else's toes but you also integrate well um so i kind of really advocate kind of four or five people being around a child um, with different responsibilities. So if, I think if people start to feel valued and part of the team um, and, and they feel like they've got something they can contribute to that will really help school and um, and, and be part of that, that dialogue, it, that can help so much.
1: Yeah, speaking of shared stresses, I think we've had COVID and that's kind of impacted all of us, I think, <laughs> in a shared way, and particularly mm-hmm. teachers. We've had to do things in lots of different ways. What are your thoughts, Louise? How can we take care of our teachers, do you think? Um, What might be one thing we can do?
2: Well, I think we need to be basically putting essential maintenance on the top of our list as a top priority, so meeting the regulation needs of of our staff. And that can include anything from anything that's sensory out there, you know, like, so I know some, some staff over here have been really creative and have thought about, you know, making their staff rooms really, you know, really comfortable in a sensory way, you know, with, with pictures and plants and some nice smells and flowers and all that kind of thing. All of that makes a massive difference. But on top of that, thinking about their relational needs and thinking about who have they got to watch their backs, who have they got checking in on them on, on a on a regular basis and not wait not saying I've got an open door policy you know where to come if you've got a problem like, like we want for the children literally going for them like literally going to find them and you know and checking in with them you know how are you doing socially emotionally mentally physically on every level how are you doing even if it's just I'll just give you a mark out of 10 you know but just having that that connection where you can start building relationship and having that meaningful time with one another you know, if we want to be really supporting children with their regulation relationship needs, it has to start with us. We need to put our own emotional oxygen masks on first before we put them on the children. So those two, again, I just think we need to be focusing on that really
1: to support our teachers. Fantastic. Thank you, Louise. That was great. Um, We'll just finish off with our kind of customary last question, which is, um, well, what are you kind of curious about in your work at the moment? how toxic stress impacts your body
2: as well as your mind. So I'm really interested in Dr. Gabor Mate's work um, and, and just seeing all the links in terms of what goes on with adults when they haven't had their regulation and relationship needs met adequately and they've not had that good enough care, they've not had anyone getting alongside um, and, and then what can happen um, at the end and, and all of his work around addiction and the connection between childhood adversity and addiction. Um, I think we've got a lot to learn from uh, about bringing all of this together, and so that we can actually bring some more weight, I suppose, to how important it is what we what we do in our schools, how we get alongside those who are hurting, how we actually provide that context for them to thrive, not merely survive, um, so that they don't have to go on as adults just self medicating, doing whatever they can to try and soothe all of that that is inside. So they can actually realise that it's not a problem with them, but that it's something that has happened, that their bodies have done a really good job of trying to support them through, you know, they, they deserve a, a medal, some of them, for having come this far and they're still alive, you know, um, for, for realising it's a heroic defence, as Paul just talks about, and so that they need to then think about well, what can I do to adapt, what can I do to support myself to be able to, to live well, to be able to function, to be able to have relationships, to be able to hold down a job you know um and all of that i just think we are in a such an amazing privileged position as educators to make such a difference for their future trajectory into adulthood and we need to see ourselves as part of that journey much more than i think
1: we do that's great thank you so much louise lots of uh practical ideas that was inspiring not to sort of finish on Um, was there any um resources a website or contact information you wanted to share with people who want might want to get in touch with you yeah well we've got a
2: website um it's www.touchbase.org.uk and on there um you can find out about all the different supports that we we offer in the different training courses but there's also something that's very interesting that you might be interested in called the trauma informed education website um, which basically just helps people to think about the developmental pathway for all of this um, so it's not just around learning about um, what this is all about and how toxic stress impacts bodies and minds but also thinking about how to be in terms of how we are around children so there's a lovely pathway of following theraplay level one and ddp level one it all kind of like comes together and integrates so that um, people can go on and keep on adding in to their ways of being um, so they can really get alongside hurting children
1: that's great um i'll, I'll just um throw it over to Kay in a minute um I, I just want to mention your books as well i think inside i'm hurting and know me to teach me. We'll put little links on our um, website to those with the um, podcast as well. Kay, did you have any final thoughts or comments?
0: No, only thank you very much. It was wonderful.
1: Thank you for inviting me. No worries. Thank you, Louise. I hope we can keep in touch.
2: Mm. That was our
0: interview with Louise Michelle Bommer. To access the resources discussed in the interview, and to learn more about trauma-informed education, visit www.tipbs.com. That's T-I-P-B-S dot If you enjoyed listening to the podca- podcast, consider providing us with a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you next time.